PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. The following PTJ podcast is the 2013 Rothstein Roundtable, Medicare Mandate for Claims-Based Functional Data Collection, an opportunity to advance care or a regulatory burden. The 2013 Rothstein Roundtable took place at APTA Conference 2013 on June 28, 2013, in Salt Lake City, Utah. The participants are Dr. Dan Cholik, Dr. Mary Stipen, and Dr. Alan Jetty. The moderator of the Rothstein Roundtable is Dr. Linda Resnick. Introducing the Roundtable is APTA President Dr. Paul Rocker, Jr. Welcome to the 8th Annual Rothstein Roundtable. I'm Paul Rocker, President of the American Physical Therapy Association, and I thank you for joining us for this extremely timely roundtable on a topic that's critical to our profession's future. This event is held in honor of the late Jules Rothstein, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus of the Physical Therapy Journal. Of Jules, it is often said, he never met a point he couldn't argue from both sides, or from other sides no one had even thought of. In the spirit of Joel's love for scholarly debate, this roundtable will acknowledge the potential barriers and explore the potential opportunities of something that is foremost on many of our minds today, the CMS requirements for functional limitation reporting. Jules was opinionated, informed, and fearless. So is this panel, and hopefully you, the audience, will be too. Moderator of this year's Rothstein Roundtable is Physical Therapy Journal Editorial Board member, Dr. Lydna Resnick. Linda is a research health scientist at the Providence VA Medical Center. She's an associate professor of research in the Department of Health Services Policy and Practice at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And she's also a member of the Focus on Therapeutic Outcomes Research Advisory Board. I'll turn the podium over to Linda to go ahead and do the panel introductions. Thank you very much. Welcome. I'm very excited and honored to be moderating this year's Rothstein Roundtable. We are here today because the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services was mandated by the Middle Class Tax Relief Act of 2012 to collect information on functional status and outcomes. This mandate will lead to major changes in the way that physical, occupational, and speech therapists must assess and report functional status, presenting us with tremendous opportunities to advance the use of outcomes measures for quality improvement, practice-based evidence, and other types of research studies. However, the elements required by the CMS mandate are relatively vague and nonspecific. As you know, the onset of treatment providers are required to report one primary functional limitation or a G-code. They're also required to report a severity complexity modifier on a seven-point scale. And then they need to report the patient goals in terms of the severity complexity modifier. Patients uh, are also to be reassessed at every 10 visits and at discharge. So although CMS has recommended four standardized outcome measures uh, for use in this initiative, 
the AMPAC, the Photo Patient Inquiry Tool, Optimal, and NOMS, no one tool is mandated. On the contrary, providers may use any tool that they choose, and we have many tools that we like, or they may use a combination of tools, or they may use that in combination with clinical judgment to assign a modifier code. Many of us have concerns about the quality and usefulness of the data that will be gathered as a result of this initiative. And some of us wonder how the data is going to be used uh, for CMS and how it relates or doesn't relate to CMS other initiatives for developing outpatient physical therapy payment alternatives. So we have a lot to talk about and I look forward to a thought-provoking conversation with our panelists. So, Let's talk about this year's Rothstein Roundtable. Prior year's roundtables were structured as debates between panelists who held opposing views. But I want you to know that this panel will not be structured in an adversarial manner. We've purposefully crafted the panel so that we can discuss different facets of the requirements. And I believe that the panelists actually agree on many points while having divergent experiences and opinions. Today, we have with us a clinical administrator on the front lines of implementing the requirements in a large healthcare setting, one of the country's leading health services researchers in rehabilitation, and one of our profession's most experienced policy analysts. Each panelist represents a very different perspective on the new functional status requirements. So now I'm pleased to introduce the esteemed panelists. The first panelist is Dan Cholek. He currently serves as the principal consultant of MedProtect. Dan has practiced as a clinician, manager, and business owner in a variety of settings. He previously earned the clinical specialist in geriatric physical therapy certification and was awarded the international certification of project management professional. Since 2000, Dan has served as the subject matter expert and project manager capacities in numerous CMS contracts. He has supported or manage multiple CMS contracts related to Part A, B, C, D, Medicaid, Medigap, and other federal and non-federal programs. Dan has been involved in virtually every important CMS analysis of outpatient rehabilitation services. Specific to physical therapy, his work has included the National Outpatient Therapy Utilization Analysis, Medical Review, Stakeholder Policy Workgroup, development of payment policy recommendation, draft policy language, and so on. He's been involved in a lot. Uh, Dan has practical experience with CMS national claims history and integrated data repository data, HIPAA, healthcare transaction standards, claim processing, and medical review. So overall, Dan's efforts have contributed directly to numerous Medicare policy changes. In addition, his understanding of the myriad issues involved has led him to be uh, an invited consultant to the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee, the Government Accountability Office, and the Medicare Payment Advisory Committee. Within the profession, Dan has contributed to physical therapy health policy activities at the university, state, chapter, and national levels. This past year, he was awarded the Charles Harker Policymaker Award by APTA's HPA section, which is awarded to recognize APTA members whose actions have impacted health policy. Dan received his BA from, uh, in psychology from Ithaca College and an MS in physical therapy for, from Columbia University. Our second panelist is Mary Stiefen. Mary is the Senior Director of Cleveland Clinic Rehabilitation and Sports Therapy. 
over the past three years, she has led the integration and consolidation of rehabilitation services across a health system consisting of nine hospitals, 47 outpatient therapy centers, and over 700 physical therapy professionals. This re-engineering project included the successful development of a unified electronic documentation system, productivity, compliance, and billing platforms. Mary supervises a huge staff across a variety of settings. Mary and her team led the effort to establish career ladders, centralized educational curricula, and innovative disease-based programming through a $4 billion medical enterprise. Featured in this effort was the development of a comprehensive neurological therapy treatment center at the Cleveland Clinic Las Vegas Lou Rovo Center for Brain Health. Mary has over 30 years of clinical and managerial experience in a wide variety of hospital, post-acute, and private practice settings. She received her BS in physical therapy from Marquette University and her DPT from Simmons College, and she's an active member of the APTA and the OPTA. Last but not least, we have Dr. Alan Jetty. Alan currently serves as Professor of Health Policy and Management at Boston University's School of Public Health and directs Boston University's Health and Disability Research Institute. He directs the Boston Rehabilitation Outcome Measurement Center, serves on the Executive Committee of the Boston Claude Pepper Older Americans Independence Center, and is Director of the New England Regional Spinal Cord Injury Center. He served as Dean of Boston University's Sargent College of Health and Rehabilitation Scientists from 1996 to 2004. Allen's current work focuses on the development and dissemination of contemporary outcome measurement instruments to evaluate the quality of healthcare. He chaired the Institute of Medicine's 2007 study titled The Future of Disability in America, which highlights disability priorities for the nation. And he currently co-chairs the IOM Forum on Aging, Disability, and Independence. Allen has an impressive history of research funding. He's been the principal investigator of more than 30 research grant awards and been co-investigator or co-principal investigator on at least 20 more. And he is the author of over 180 scientific articles and more than a dozen book chapters. Allen received a BS in physical therapy from the State University of New York at Buffalo, an MPH and a PhD in public health from the University of Michigan. So. These are our panelists, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Each panelist will now have a few minutes uh, devoted to their opening remarks. And these will be followed by questions from me. And then finally, it will be your turn to ask questions. So please hold your questions to the end. There will be half an hour for questions at the end. So we'll begin with Dan. We've all... Good morning, everybody, and thank you, Linda. We've all agreed to sit here to be a little bit more casual um, while we're speaking as we give our opening remarks. Uh, it's, a it's a pleasure to be speaking on this topic today. Uh, this is an important issue that I believe transcends Medicare Part B payment policy and should impact physical therapy across all clinical environments. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to complete some necessary housework. Uh, uh, I have been a Medicare contractor for 13 years with CSC and most recently with MedProtect, uh, part of SAIC. Uh, and anything I say and do today is not re representative of SAIC, CIC, <laughs> CSC, or CMS. Uh, it's all my opinion or my uh, verbal goofs. Um, now I'll start. Um, topic we're discussing today is whether a new claims-based functional reporting policy represents an opportunity to advance care or regulatory burden. 
Uh, I believe that in current form of the policy as it's been implemented, uh, the answer to both parts of the question is a resounding yes. Uh, I believe that functional reporting concept provides a very important opportunity for physical therapists to better define our role in healthcare reform. However, the initial implementation approach is flawed because it is based on an obsolete payment model and is essentially bur is excessively burdensome. The Affordable Act of 2010 introduced two significant disruptive policy changes that signaled the death knell to procedure-based payment policy and are irrelevant to today's discussion. Uh, first, the Affordable Care Act required the Department of Health and Human Services to develop a national quality strategy. Um, this strategy consists of three aims, which are one, better care, two, healthy people, healthy communities, and three, affordable care. Of, within this, function is a key component of these aims and priorities. And um, that's critical to what our thinking is today. In essence, the national quality strategy is seeking to break down the communication barriers between healthcare providers, public health officials, and the public. And a huge emphasis is being placed on patient-centric measures, including patient experience and patient-reported outcomes. In addition, federal health policies must now align to these aims and priorities. Essentially, CMS, uh, the government's put out a checklist for CMS, that HHS has put out a checklist for CMS, that whatever policy they, they put out regarding payment has to meet the needs of the national quality strategy. So we need to have everything in line with that. Uh, second, the second disruptive change from the ACA was that it required CMS to transform the data infrastructure from an antiquated system there of multiple independent data silos towards a single integrated data enterprise system. This new enterprise will expand the capacity of CMS to collect clinically relevant quality outcomes data that can be integrated across all types of providers. This will permit the further analysis and development of patient-centric policies, not just for an individual payment system such as Part B, but across all payment systems. In my prior role as a principal investigator for several Medicare outpatient therapy studies, I became acutely aware of the issues that implementation of claims-based functional reporting poses. Uh, here are about a few examples. I could have days to talk about these, but here's a few. One, from a CMS perspective, there is insufficient clinical information available for administrative claims data to be able to identify if there's a need for therapy services, if the therapy intervention is achieving the expected outcome, and whether the outcome being achieved is being achieved in a cost-effective manner. Claims diagnosis and procedure code reporting is just not good enough. CMS needs better information to inform payment decisions. However, the provider community has been very disorganized in responding and offering plausible payment policy alternatives. I think those of you who have attended a couple of sessions uh, yesterday uh, heard that issue of even now people are saying that this is my way is the way that's better than your way type of thing. Um, that, that needs to be stopped. Um, there's just too much variability in how therapists describe what they do and the results they get and ultimately the cost. To CMS, at this point in time, claims data provides the easiest avenue to collect additional functional information. Two, from a therapist's perspective, Part B policy efforts to date have focused more on administrative gotcha policies. Um, these payment code approaches that have little or nothing to do with the complexity of care or the functional impact of the interventions. These policies serve only to cut payments. Gotcha policies such as the MPPR, MUE, CCI, eight-minute rule, and the MAC LCDs often overlap and just are complex as hell heck. Uh, 
simply adding another set of functional coding requirement, requirements on top of the current coding mess just takes more time away from taking care of the patients and making them better. Measures used to report outcomes and quality must be administratively reasonable and appropriate, and it would be preferable that functional reporting would be a natural extension of your clinical workflow. If therapists are going to buy into functional reporting, policy needs to be revised to reduce these administrative burdens that do not serve to improve quality or outcome. From the data analysis researcher's perspective, it is unclear how the newly mandated functional data can or would be used to immediately inform future payment efforts. As implemented, the data submitted is fraught with imprecision, and there is no way to determine if scientifically valid tools were used. And if used, there is no way to compare the functional changes across providers. This is a short presentation. In conclusion, <laughs> the claims-based functional data policy, I got my little wave, uh, although flawed, has been a necessary wake-up call for our profession. While each patient presents with individual needs and may require a variety of clinical assessment tools to, and interventions, we need to have an honest discussion and come to some agreement regarding how we will report to the outside world in a transparent manner exactly what value we provide within the healthcare system. Outpatient therapy payment policy does not live in a vacuum. If we are to be successful, we must align our strategies and complement the new policy directions Medicare is headed and demand that Medicare Part B payment policy modernization align with the national healthcare reform initiatives and not be handled in its, its own little world. I look forward to hearing what Mary and Alan have, will be presenting from their perspective and from the question and answer session following these comments. Thank you. So good morning. Um, thanks for the opportunity to be here. And so today when I talk, I'm going to talk um, from my frame of reference, and it's as being the senior director for Cleveland Clinic Rehab and Sports Therapy. Um, so I see this as a tremendous opportunity, and it's been a tremendous opportunity for us at the Cleveland Clinic to kind of standardize what we do. Um, so as I, as I was preparing for this, I found a quote from John F. Kennedy that I just loved. And he said, the Chinese use two brushstrokes to write the word crisis. One stands for danger. The other stands for opportunity. In a crisis, be aware of the danger, but recognize the opportunity. So for us, I think we have a tremendous opportunity here to change what we do and kind of standardize some of our practice. So as Dan said, our current system is flawed, and that the current system of measuring what we're doing is flawed. But, the, it, but there's benefits to it. And I think the benefits are that it forces us as therapists to really see the importance of measuring what we do. Um, and again, being accountable for what we do with patient care on every visit. And so on a clinical level at, at, at the Cleveland Clinic, it's really forced all the therapists to really look at what they're doing and start to measure it. So I want to talk to you today a little bit about what we did at the Cleveland Clinic and how we use this crisis um, to operationalize um, functional outcome reporting at 47 out, outpatient locations with about 350 therapists. It's a tremendous undertaking. And what we got to do was to use an electronic out, outcome database that we call the KP. So we were able to operationalize that and use that as the tool for us to collect outcomes. Um, so a little bit an overview again of integration of CCRST. So prior to 2010, we were eight very different leadership teams um, at all different hospitals and different institutes. And when we came together, one of the things that was very important to us is that we would start to standardize clinical care and standardize our operations. 
So we provide care to um, 37 acute care, 3,700 acute care beds in, in our 10 hospitals. Um, we have 100 rehab beds. We have 85 skilled nursing beds. And again, we have 47 outpatient locations. We do over 400,000 outpatient visits a year, and 35% of that is Medicare. So we see lots of patients across lots of settings. So standardization of care was something that was really important to us. We wanted to make sure that if you were on the east side of town and you, had, you were being seen for osteoporosis, you got the same care if you went to another location. So that, that was the first thing that we tackled. And it was interesting, as we were doing that, um, the hardest thing for us to, to come to consensus on was what outcome tool we were going to use to measure what we did. We could standardize our templates, we could standardize our care paths, we could standardize everything. But when we came to the outcome tools, there was so much debate about what tool we should use. So we came to consensus on some, and we, um, again, we, we started to be able to roll out this, this KP, we, it's, it's the knowledge program. Um, and it's, it's a data repository for outcome tools. And we rolled this out to a couple locations, and we started to standardize the what, what we collected. So we standardized it to the Oswestry, LAFS, Quick Dash, and, ND, and um, NDI. So very um, typical. That was easy. Um, when we got to some other diagnoses, it became much more complicated. So kind of in tandem with what we were doing there, um, we started to collect some functional outcome data in our acute care hospital. And um, we learned a lot from that. And what we did, we have this tool we call Six Clicks. And it is six questions. Um, we worked with Dr. Jetty, and we came up with six questions based on the AMPAC. So in the acute hospital, therapists um, on every patient visit do a functional outcome. They, they do a functional outcome reporting. And we've gotten tremendous amount of data from that. And that data has really allowed us to provide better care. We know what we're doing with our patients. We know what our patients look like. We have about 200,000 data points using the same tool, maybe 250 by now, using the exact same tool. And that has really allowed us to facilitate facilitate some change. We know what our patients look like. We know the functional profile of them. We were able to look at resource utilization. We're able to make decisions about discharge disposition. We're able to make lots of decisions. And most importantly, we could affect some system change. Because of having the same data, we were able to um, really change the culture within the Cleveland Clinic and our regional hospitals. So when we started thinking about how we were going to operationalize this you know, this tremendous task we had at hand, we decided as, um, as Cleveland Clinic to go to one tool. And so I, I think there will be some benefit in it for us to utilize one tool, and we are going to use the AMPAC and, and short forms. It doesn't mean that therapists can't utilize other tools, but we think it's a tremendous opportunity to gather the same data um, for 400,000 outpatient visits. Oh, that's my five minutes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my turn. Jan just gave me the high sign. I've got five minutes left. <laughs> First, a disclosure. Um, I am one of the developers of the activity measure for post-acute care. And now in terms of my comments, I was asked to look at the issue of Medicare's mandated claims-based functional data collection from a health services perspective and to do it in five minutes. 
<laughs> so I thought the way that I would do it is I would first lay out, if, if one was to design uh, an approach for doing mandated claims-based functional data collection, what criteria would I want to achieve in order to maximize the potential from a health services perspective? And then uh, take a minute or two and reflect on how CMS did from that perspective, at least from my point of view. So the first criterion that I would want to see achieved is that the measurements would need to be on a common metric. If you're going to do claims-based reporting across patients, looking at it across providers and across different uh, settings, you have to have a common metric. Otherwise, you're going to be making comparisons of apples to oranges. So that would be the first criterion. The second criterion, from my point of view, is that it would have to be universal. You can't have cherry-picking if you're going to do mandated reporting. If you have 40% of discharges that are never completed, you have tremendous potential for selection bias. So the system has to be universal so that you can uh, allay concerns about cherry-picking and selection bias. The third criterion is that the, the data collection needs to be minimal and with emphasis on, on minimal <laughs> and truly minimal. And those of you who are familiar with other efforts that Medicare is undertaking uh, in the so-called DAPA project um, in, in trying to develop a common assessment for Medicare Part B patients, you know uh, what something not being minimal looks like. The third is the assessments need to be standardized, which means from a um, data collection perspective, one would have to have training so that people are collecting the information consistently in the same fashion so that the comparisons that you're going to make have meaning. And then finally, from my perspective, and this one's probably a little off base, but um, I'm up here so I get a chance to say it. In, in the 21st century with the ACA, we have to think about assessment um, in, in the new world, as Dan was talking about, the healthcare system has, is changing fundamentally. And so the whole idea of doing something unique for outpatient therapy uh, and ignoring all the other settings where care is being provided makes no sense to me. So those would be the criteria that I would want to see for this to be meaningful as an, an initiative. So, so how is the, the G-code system, how does it, how does it, um, match up to these criteria? Well, it's universal. <laughs> so I'll give them that. Um, it's mandated and that people, in order to get paid, are going to have to do it on all patients. And so I think, and that's not insignificant. I mean, I will be the first to criticize CMS, but that is a significant step forward. They are moving toward pay for reporting. They're not anywhere near pay for performance, but we have begun to move into the world of pay for reporting, and I think that's an important step forward to really communicate to the field that it's a, it's a brave new world and that this kind of reporting is coming down the track. With respect to the other criteria, I think it's an opportunity missed. Now, creative positive deviants like Mary Stilfen and her colleagues are taking full advantage of this mandated opportunity, and they're taking full advantage of it and doing something very meaningful out of it. But if you look at the program that CMS has put out there, 
there is not going to be a common metric. We're not even sure what metrics people will be using. So that criterion makes it extremely difficult for anyone to ever analyze and use that information. You have no idea in what the information will really mean and represent. Um, whether or not it's minimal or not, it's hard to judge because we're not sure what people are going to be doing. There's no training or uh, attempt to have standardization in how the data are going to be collected, and they still seem to be stuck in the setting-specific silos that CMS has created over the, the past many decades. Uh, so from my point of view, it's primarily a, um, an opportunity missed, um, but it's at least one small step moving in the direction that we need to move. Thank you. Great. Now, I've prepared some questions that I would like to discuss with you. You've all mentioned that standardization of data is necessary. Uh, because there is no common metric, it will be difficult to, to utilize the data. Uh, so I know where you stand on that. But I'd actually like to hear about what the drawbacks of using a standardized measure might be. I know there's a lot of resistance to the idea of a single measure. So can you speak to some of the limitations and some of the issues in using a single measure? Uh, Matt, anyone can take it. Go ahead. I mean, I, I, I guess we've made the choice to use a standard measure. So I really, and I think for some of the same reasons that Alan said is, we're not caring for a person in a silo when we look at, at outpatient. And so, and, and especially for a Medicare population, we've seen them in other venues of care. So I think to have a, a universal measure that crosses all settings is really important. Um, so that we can really see what patients do across settings. Again, this is a, their outpatient care is a minute in time, and and really they're you know in in all different settings. So that's what I like about having a standard measure. You know, the argument is is it specific enough? And it's it's not a mandate on our part that you have to use this. We, we're going to collect it, but if they want to do another outcome measure that may be more specific to the patient's care and will help them um, treatment plan or set goals, have at it. I mean, th that, then I think I think they should. But in, in order of, of helping to manage transitions in care and seeing progress across the continuum, when you talk about bundling, I think this universal measure for us in our system, I think, will be the most valuable. Uh, from my perspective, I think the major criticism that I hear is that if you use a generic measure, you're going to lose sensitivity to important clinically meaningful change that's occurring with my patient. And I think Mary's uh, approach is a reasonable one. Uh, I, I think. The research that has been done has shown that there is some loss of sensitivity. But by and large, when you compare uh, condition-specific measures to more generic measures, the, the signal-to-noise ratio is all pointing in the same direction. There may be some loss of sensitivity, but it's pointing, for the most part, in the same direction. The other point I would make is it, it, it strikes me that we're, we always talk about um, generic measures as if it's something that we don't do in rehabilitation. And it's striking to me, if you look at the standard for collecting outcome data in inpatient rehab, what is it? It's the FIM. The FIM is a generic measure. If you look at the standard for collecting outcome information in skilled nursing facilities, it's the MDS, a generic measure. If you look at the standard for collecting outcome information in the home health arena, it's the OASIS, a standard measure. 
We have been using generic measures and living with some loss of sensitivity in post-acute care for decades. It seems to me it's not a radical idea. And if you're going to uh, put together a universal data collection system, I don't think you have any choice but to move toward a generic approach. Yeah, and I would add, from a, from a payment policy perspective, we, we, one of the challenges with this policy being implemented is that we really need to approach this from a concept of there's information we need to gather to make clinical decisions that needs incredible precision sometimes to make the right decision. Um, and the scientific validity and uh, uh, specificity is very important. Uh, however, for payment policy, you don't need as much precision to make those decisions. So you don't need that specific data. And, um, and essentially, payment policy is more like a uh, horseshoes and hand grenades. You just need to be close, and on average, you'll get it. Um, and and that's sort of, a, you need to think about it. You need to start somewhere. You know, the DRG system, payment system for hospitals started 30 years ago in 1983. They're still refining and tweaking it as they learn it. You know, at what point in time are we going to start? We need to start with something that's common and standard. And ideally, it's something that's common and standard across settings because, you know what, there's therapists, there's therapists in this room, I'm sure, that work in settings that bill and provide care, even within the Medicare system, the two different Medicare payment systems, if not three. You're, if you're in a rural hospital, you might be doing outpatient uh, swing bed and acute care uh, do you want to have three different re functional reporting systems report, or do you want to have one set of common items that can be reported, but you still do for your clinical purpose individual tests and measures that are specific to that patient? But why can't we figure out and find a common set of metrics that can be used and submitted that can be enough of a ballpark estimate to affect payment decisions? Better than what we are now, where it's just how much we bill or how much they're willing to bill us or pay us. And that's sort of where we're stuck right now. Just one more comment. The other thing is we don't really know that a generic outcome tool is not sensitive to change. I mean, we, we don't have large databases of, of generic tools. And so that's one of the things that I'm hoping that we can achieve at the clinic is that with, with using a generic tool for 400,000 visits, that we'll be able to see, you know, if, if it is sensitive enough to change. It may or may not be, but until we really have the data and can look at it, we don't really know. And so, you know, that's one of the things that we want to do is just, just get out there and, again, just try. Just start something and see if it can help us all move forward a little bit. You know, we have some preliminary data um, at Lou Ruvo where they see mostly a neuro neurological patient population. And I was just telling Alan before this that, you know, so they've been using the, the DAPTA version of the AMPAC as their tool. So not, not the PDQ39, which you would typically use for – and, and they're, they're seeing um, – a, change, a significant change in, in, the, in the initial eval score and, and the score at, at 10 visits and about a five-point increase. And so, so it, it is sensitive to progress um, in, in that setting. So again, we'll see, but, but we need the data first to make some decisions about that. So following up on that, let's talk about other things that can be done with the data that's collected the way it is now. Uh, we've talked about maybe things that shouldn't be done, but uh, what could it be used for by CMS? What do you think the first thing CMS might do with it is? And uh, what might researchers use it for? And uh, speak more also to how clinicians and administrators can take advantage of what well, the system that exists now. I could probably start with that. Um, you know, the first thing 
there's not a whole lot that can be done with it that's extremely useful, but there are pieces to it. You know, from a context of the payment policy and with the cap policy and $3,700 limit and all these other things, um, there, there is a need for CMS to have information that can help the contractors efficiently identify outliers, people who are more likely to have claims that uh, are maybe me me not medically necessary. Um, before this reporting requirement, you just had the amount of dollars billed. And you didn't know whether that patient was a simple ankle sprain or a, a train wreck. You know, it just, you didn't know that. This reporting system at least gives a little indicator on the claim of what that level of complexity to the patient it presents to the, the, the therapist. Again, it's not, as Alan said, it's not very clear and precise what that is, but it's something. Um, and the modifiers talking about progress over time, although very imprecise, do allow some measure of showing that there's some impact being made over time within that. So it does help from a medical review standpoint immediately to help within the context of a cap policy and exceptions process policy. Um, from a uh, payment policy modeling perspective, it, it may help a little bit in a sense that uh, one of the things I think that was a, a Herculean step forward is that they introduced the, uh, the ICF or International Classification of Function and Disease uh, language into payment policy. By having uh, the ability uh, to describe different functional things you're treating with somebody, again, that's a flawed policy how they did it, but, it, you know, are you working on them walking and getting around or working on some other um, functional activity? That's a nice thing to add to it. You've got a diagnosis of uh, you know, hip, hip fracture and you've got uh, walking and getting around and then you've got the utilization information and progress stuff. You can sort of see a little bit of patterns happening. Um, in our, our prior analysis, the only thing we could analyze on a claim was the diagnosis and the dollars billed. And even with that information, however imprecise, there were some patterns that could be seen and some inferences that could be made as far as what type of conditions tend to have more cost versus others. You start adding in things about function uh, and improvement over time, Again, it's imprecise, but it starts giving indicators of where areas might be uh, useful to, if we had better information, it might inform better payment decisions there. So I think the, the way it's come out, the usefulness of the, that data provides, if anything, some inter interesting patterns available that we didn't have before that can inform us as far as what we need to do to get better information. What better information would be available to be in there. Obviously, a standard instrument would be ideal thing, but even within that, what items within those instruments would be the most useful? I would have two comments. Uh, the first one is, I think the current requirement creates an opportunity for healthcare clinics and networks to set it up and do it the right way. And I think Mary gives a really good example of how she's gone way beyond what CMS is requiring. But since they have to do G-code reporting, they decided they were going to do it uh, in a standardized way where the, the information that they're going to collect has real meaning. So that I think that's like a model of, of a way in which it could be useful for the individual networks and clinics. 
in direct response to Linda's question of what can we do with the the data that CMS is collecting, the way in which they're collecting it, I would strongly, and this is in the spirit of my friend Jules, I would strongly recommend that the APTA take the strongest possible position that the way that they've done it, the data is not useful. That we should not be doing what Dan is suggesting because that acknowledges that um, data that's collected in a inappropriate way is somehow useful and meaningful. And it seems to me, as a profession, we should take a very strong stand saying to CMS, we understand why you're moving in this direction, but for the following reasons, this information should not be used in developing payment models and systems going forward. Garbage in, garbage out. I, I just I completely agree with what Alan just said. With um, garbage in, garbage out. I mean, this I, I don't know how anybody could make any decisions about payment over over the way we're entering the, our, the severity modifiers. And so my biggest fear in doing what we're doing is that they may. And so um, I'm not sure that you know w with um, the way the severity modifiers are and the way you know the, the scoring is for the impact that we're going to see a big enough improvement for them um, you know you may not jump a severity modifier although you may show change and so you know because we're doing the right thing I, I hope to god we don't get penalized for that but um, you know I just have to hope and I, and I agree with you I, I hope we take a strong stance that this is not the way to go about it yeah and there, there is a risk you know obviously once once an idea gets into CMS, uh, things can be transformed and modified, as I mentioned in my open comments. You know, sometimes the, the, the approach to policy is to add things onto other things where you need to take some things away. And so that, as Alan mentioned and Mary mentioned, it, it is a risk that that additional data, that data can be used to directly inform payment policy. Um, my reference is more of indirectly of the next steps, but obviously once they have that in place there, somebody may make a decision to use it for purposes. And, you know, I agree with Alan that APTA should be strongly against using that data for specific immediate changes of payment policy. It should be informed next steps of what they need to do to gather more meaningful and useful information. Okay. Dan, you said in your opening remark that CMS <laughs> administrative data is just not good enough to have the clinical information needed to understand the patient. So in your opinion and those of the panel, what other types of data should be required as part of an ideal functional status reporting system um, or that providers who are trying to do the right things should collect on their own? Uh, and uh, you can add, you can expand on okay. the comments. A um, couple things is that that's extremely difficult that still is not being addressed by the current functional reporting requirement is that we really don't know what we're treating. We're not reporting of what this, who that person is in front of us. Uh, there's no indicator of, um, I think the example of a made, uh, Steve Levin made an example yesterday in one of the presentations that you can have a person come in with a hip fracture, two people coming in the same day, status post hip replacement. You know, one's an uh, obese, diabetic person with uh, multiple comorbidities and one's uh, 20 years older but is in top health. You know, and there, 
Same diagnosis shows up on a claim, same procedure codes show up on a claim, and there's even with this function reporting system, you may get a little bit more information that their functional level is different, but you're still treating the same functional limitations. There's no indication of what that clinical status is. So information coming in in the next round of this function reporting, ideally we should have something to better describe the patient as a whole, where they are, and some kind of indicator of what they are. I, you know, ideally, it'd be a single score. It makes it simple, easier to system. The system doesn't really handle well at this point in time the ability to send in a bunch of data to CMS and have them process it. They're working on it. You know, a few years ago, you, you didn't hear about things. Um, you had physician quality reporting system a couple of years ago was only with claims stuff. Now they've got registry reporting. Now you've got EHR reporting. Um, they've got uh, ability for some types of payment systems to submit clinical data that classifies patients and does a risk adjustment, allows for risk adjustment. They have ability to go on a CMS portal and submit that clinical data either by individual patient or in a batch process through your uh, billing system. That additional data that describes the patient is ultimately where we need to get. And how we get there may start off with something simpler, with some of these individual smaller test items, the, the generic tests that allow us to get there. But that's where CMS needs. They need to know the condition of the patient in front of you and where they are. And so that you can predict and provide those models about how much it'll probably cost and how much uh, it'll, how much time it'll take to take care of them. Pass it on. To build on, on Dan's comment, it, it seems to me CMS has to figure out a way to collect uh, critical risk adjustment uh, variables because for this information to have any value in making comparisons across patients, across providers, across clinics, you've got to be able to risk adjust on critical variables so you're comparing apples to apples. And uh, again, I think the APTA needs to take a strong stand on this with CMS. It's not good enough to say, well, CMS doesn't know how to do it or it's too difficult or too challenging. They've, they've taken the initiative to move toward reporting of this information. So they have an obligation to figure it out to do it right. So, so you're not comparing apples to oranges. And it seems to me the profession has every right to take a very strong stand in saying, CMS, this is what you need to do if you're going to do it correctly. Um, the, there are vehicles for providing input to CMS, and it seems to me the last thing we should be doing is just standing back and hoping that CMS figures it out. We need to be very proactive and taking a strong stand, not just trying to block what they're doing. I'm not suggesting that at all, but taking a very strong stand and giving them direction on what would make it more meaningful. And, and that involves making difficult decisions as a profession. But I think over the years we've learned that if we take the other path, they're going to make decisions anyhow. So who do you want making the decisions? People that we respect and trust in our profession or waiting for CMS to do it? Seems like a no-brainer to me. So I'd like to follow up on, on that because we've talked about important uh, data for risk adjustment, but how do we know and what specifically do we think should be collected? If we're going to make a recommendation to CMS that these other 
uh, data elements should be collected, what are they and how do we know what they are? <laughs> well, we're not operating in a vacuum. I mean, uh, Linda, you, you've had association with the photo network. The photo has been collecting outpatient uh, outcome data and been doing risk adjustment in the outpatient environment for many years now. Uh, we have a lot of information from that project, uh, that initiative, as well as from others on what variables are important for risk adjustment in outpatient. So it seems to me we need to provide that kind of evidence to CMS. It's, it's not, um, we're not operating in a vacuum here. There's been a lot of work that's been done uh, over the years. And so it seems to me that's what we've got to bring to the fore. You know, the MedPAC, um, the medical, uh, Medicare, what is it, what's stand for? Advisory Committee? Uh, they, they are a body that exists for making advice to CMS on these kinds of policy decisions. It seems to me this is a group that we should be approaching very aggressively and giving them um, guidance on what CMS should be doing for these initiatives to be meaningful. We have, I think, a lot of uh, data on what the important risk uh, adjusters are. And I, I think what, whatever it whatever we choose, it has to be relatively um, easy to report. And I, I think, you know, if, if we look at um, some of the DAP trial and the, the, the tool, although, you know, great and on so many levels, is so burdensome for, for people to complete. And so I, I think we just have to make sure that we keep it simple so that people can actually complete it and, and do it. Yeah, and, and the big buzzword across a healthcare reform initiatives is harmonization. Uh, you're seeing it a lot happening in um, the quality reporting systems. You know, they built quality reporting systems for physicians and hospitals and uh, end-stage renal disease facilities and uh, IRFs and hospice and everything. And they started off having each of these different payment systems develop measures that tended to be the same measure but different metrics. They described the same thing, but had a slightly different metric. And they're like, why are we doing this? And so that CMS is working, actually working on a program, program now to say that, well, if you have a measure for decubitus ulcers in one setting, why can't that measure be identical to the measure in another setting? So they're working on harmonizing that. Um, we need to work on that within our profession, within our measures. Uh, one of the things uh, we observed when we were looking at the different uh, assessment tools available, particularly the uh, the, the more generic tools available for all patient therapy services that uh, is in the ones that are, particularly the ones that do risk adjustment is that therapists collect usually the same core information. Most of the, the main information is identical and if you look at the different tools, they're collecting the same ones. They might collect it slightly differently. So there may be some need for harmonization within what we have within our tools available um, so that any of them could be used for your clinical purposes or for reporting purposes. And so we want to think about going in that direction as far as, you know, how do we need to do to harmonize what we're doing so that we're consistent with what CMS is trying to do across settings. So let's speak more to standardizing a measure of function across settings and some of the challenges, because uh, I certainly am in agreement that would be so useful as people transition from one setting to another to be able to track patients. But what are some of the inherent challenges in making a measure that's appropriate across the settings? That's a, probably a question for Alan. 
Well, there's no question that it it is challenging. If you think about the level of function of patients from inpatient rehab all the way out to outpatient, even just looking at the Medicare patient, there's a huge range of functioning and that creates a real challenge. So from my perspective, this is where uh, we need to move away from um, classical uh, measurement uh, instruments and we need to aggressively adopt item response theory methodology for building tools that can span a very large continuum from very low to very high functioning. The methods have been well developed. Um, the, the field has been slow to adopt them, but um, the methods are, are well characterized, they're well accepted, and there are different ways in which you can administer those kinds of IRT-developed uh, instruments. You can use computerized adaptive testing, which I think is the, the, the preferred method of um, selecting only those items that are relevant given the particular functional level of a patient in a particular post-acute care setting. But recognizing that in many settings we're not ready and don't have the IT platforms for doing that, a fallback position is, is, is very acceptable in developing short forms based on those very comprehensive item response theory pools of data, all of which are um, derived from the same common metric but include different items so that you could develop uh, like Mary has done in uh, acute care, a short form of six items for acute care patients drawn from the same pool that her outpatient short form is drawn from. Completely different items, but all drawn from the same pool developed under I I um, item response theory methodology. It generates a standardized score that allows you to compare the status of a patient in acute care to where they are in outpatient or SNF or uh, inpatient rehab. So the methodology is there. I mean, it, 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 it's not um, magic. It, it, it requires moving away from classical test uh, development into item response theory models and tools that will allow us to use the same metric even though we're using different items in different care settings. So I, I think the, the the, the path is there. It just requires uh, the, um, the will and the initiative and the motivation to move in that direction. And the good news is with the passage of the ACA, the healthcare system is now pushing us in that direction. Uh, and, you know, large healthcare networks are becoming very interested in what's happening to their patients as they go through the entire episode of care. So I think the, the methodology is available. I think there's the motivation because of the ACA to move in that direction. I, I, I just, so that's my answer. Um, we, we found too in, in doing this um, at the clinic that it really gets to 90 to 95% of our patient population. What, what, may, what, what it may, this tool may not get is the high level athletes or the high level, um, you know, higher level functioning patients that we see. Um, but from a, a 
patient in the ICU to uh, a back patient that we're seeing in the outpatient facility, we have, you know, we're, by using various forms of that we, we don't have the CAT mm -hmm. tool, we're using various short forms, we're able to get a different slice and, 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 and give a patient a tool that looks meaningful to them based on their level of function and really are able to collect data from that. So we're finding that it, it's appropriate for about, you know, 90, 95% of our patient population. So again, once we have the data, we'll know for sure, and we'll be able to see how sensitive it has changed. But we started, you know, I was telling um, Alan, I pulled some stats before I came, and we already have, um, and we started this maybe back in March, not, you know, in rolling this out in facilities, we already have 1,196 short forms. Um, so pretty quickly, we'll be able to make some determination, and, and it, truly, if this is sensitive enough by patient diagnosis. Yeah. In, in following up with what Alan said uh, <clears throat> about uh, you know computer adaptive testing and patient entered uh, outcomes information, uh, that is a huge emphasis right now with CMS in a lot of the quality reporting systems, particularly for inpatient systems. Almost every inpatient uh, uh, pay payment system from Part A is uh, or going is currently or shifting real rapidly towards. Uh, patient reported outcomes measures, and they do that through tools developed through AHRQ. Um, and th that is an interesting direction to go with. So I think there's a, a lot of the resistance to patient reported outcomes uh, has really uh, been overcome by a, a lot of good research. And so that is something that we need to think about as well. Um, the other thing I want to say is that there is a risk that if we don't move towards this direction where we develop a, simple, a relatively simple tool that can be uh, provide useful information that's a standardized tool, we want to run the risk of CMS implementing something based upon information they have available. Um, just yesterday, I reviewed a uh, statement of work for a CMS contract that they're looking at the possibility because they have the data available of what might they be able to do with functional data from the IR, uh, ICF IRF form, the MDS, um, and the care tool. Maybe they can use pieces of that to help inform functional outcomes. Do we want to be limited in our reporting of functional outcomes to what's available in the tools that, we cr that are currently reported for other purposes for CMS? Or do we want to have something that's more qualitative and quantitative and useful um, that we can have that better describes what we do? Um, and I'm concerned about that because, again, we'd have to be, depending on which payment system, we'd have to learn how to report function differently. And that would essentially be in addition to our clinical work process. It'd be nicer to have something we could build in our clinical workflow that makes sense, whether we're working in a, a acute hospital bedside, working in a, a home health agency, or working in somebody in a nursing home or an outpatient clinic. And so that, that's, that, that's the risk we take. Do we move towards a single instrument, or do we let CMS go with whatever tools and information they have available with the tools they are collecting information on now? I just wanted to make a quick clarification. The methodology that I was describing does not require that the tool be patient reported. Uh, in Mary's example, in um, the six clicks tool that they're using in acute care is therapist reported or therapist observed. So it, it will accommodate you know, various means of collecting the information. It's a methodology for developing a common metric and scale that can be used across settings. 
and, and I, just to state, you know, whether or not it's re, it's required by um, CMS that we have a standard measure, we are going to have a standard measure at the Cleveland Clinic. And so we are going to start implementing a, a version of um, the AMPAC in our skilled nursing facilities that will go in tandem with the MDS. And we are, so that we can use that for ourselves to, to measure what, what our um, therapists are doing, how our patients are doing, whether in their care, and when to transition patients to the next level of care. And we'll also use it in the, in the ERFs, but we are going to start to operationalize that also, regardless of what the requirement is, because I think it's the best thing to do for, for our patients and, and for us as clinicians. I just wanted to, uh, you to touch upon the implications of standardized functional status reporting for patients who are not expected to improve, because I think this is also a concern uh, for practitioners, how is CMS going to deal with data for patients whose prognosis is deterioration or whose skilled therapy needs are for maintenance? I can start with that. Um, yeah, most of you are probably aware of the Jimmo versus Sebelius decision uh, earlier this year with the, the lawsuit about um, the fact that uh, a number of Medicare contractors were using a rule of thumb uh, that uh, policy that uh, if they uh, had somebody had a diagnosis or condition that was a degenerative condition or um, wasn't expected to be progress is that some of the contractors were denying uh, payment or coverage because uh, there, they, there was not an expectation of functional improvement based upon the clinical assessment. Um, and CMS uh, in the decision agreed that they stated that it never was their policy that you couldn't treat those folks because uh, they still met the requirement of needing skilled physical therapy services, um, but that they basically said the contractors were uh, acting out of line. Um, although uh, they, CMS did admit their guidance, written guidance, wasn't up to standard and that by January 1 next year that they will issue better guidance as far as uh, coverage. How that affects functional reporting, I think, is a significant impact because I mentioned earlier that one of the things that contractors could use is looking at progress over time and decide who they might want to pull for medical review. Um, if you have someone coming in that has a, you know, half of their function is lost by your initial assessment, your score there, and you expect them to lose it more, but your goal is just to prevent them from losing it or lose it slower, um, how do you report that? Your documentation may describe that, but your functional reporting scoring, when the contractor gets it on their codes, they'll see, okay, 50% loss, now they're in the code at 70% loss of function, now it's a code at 90% loss function. You know, do you want to have people who treat a lot of patients that are, you know, maybe they have specialty in treating people with Parkinson's or something, I don't know, but, uh, you know, it might be an issue for them. Um, so how do you do that? I think that that's going to be an ongoing discussion to have. Um, if we were talking about, you know, I, I'm getting practical here. If CMS were to maybe modify their policy to, to address this, maybe they want to want to consider a, a, a code available to describe the fact that in your initial assessment, you expect a person to either have a functional improvement or you, you're, you're treating them not to have a decline so that there's an indicator on the claim that meets this Jim Obisabilia standard so that the contractor knows ahead of time and that um, it may create uh, an impact on their decisions of who to pull for medical review and things like that. Um, and that can also be helpful for, again, the, the data isn't the best, but if they were to analyze the data, I'd rather have that data pulled separately out of 
the, uh, the population before you're analyzing trends over time because it's just gonna skew the data even worse than it already is because of the limits of it. And so again, um, I think CMS, in addition to implementing instructions upon the policy in general, probably needs to be advised and pushed hard by APTA to add in those instructions how contractors handle this when the clinician expects that the best they're gonna get is to maintain function over time or to slow down and prevent a decline. And, you know, if they're predicting that they're gonna have a dec decline in function of 20% or another one level or two levels of the, uh, the modifier score, then the contractor should respect that in their assessment of the, the, the plan of care and the progress and the outcome. So on a patient care level, um, I think that the therapy cap and the, and the required reporting um, of, of functional limitations has really helped us provide better care to patients with chronic and progressive neurological disorders. So I'll speak to, um, we have a lot of centers that just really treat the, the neuropatient population. And, and I don't think we should be seeing them just because they have a, a neurological disorder three times a week for the next, you know, for, for the next, you know, for how, however. So it's really made us think about how we provide care. And yes, they come in for an episode, and then we've established some self-pay programs that they may go to or some um, more maintenance-like level programs. And we've shown that they still improve while they're in those programs. And then they have a little d decline in function, and they, and they bounce back to therapy. But we just don't put them on anymore for three times a week for 12 weeks, for, you know, three months. Um, so it's really helped us manage a patient um, with a chronic progressive neurological disorder over a long period of time. And so I, I, I am thankful for that. I, I think it's time for the audience questions, but before I go to the audience, I, I'm gonna ask a question which we may end up punting back to the audience, which is, you know, I'm hearing the urgency in, in that the profession needs to take a stand and uh, there is a lot of efforts that need to be done to advocate for physical therapy. How does this discussion relate to APTA's plan for a data registry or data repository, and um, or how should it? So maybe the panelists could just say what how they think it should relate, and then uh, we can hear from other members of the audience. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, no pressure. Ellen gets to go first. <laughs> Well, I, I can only respond from the perspective of how I would like to, to see it develop. And um, from, from my point of view, it seems to me that the APTA could provide an important role in facilitating the, um, the coming together of providers, practices, and networks across our field and to help guide the development of the kinds of databases that we think are going to be extremely helpful to asking important questions uh, of the type that we've been talking about today. So I think the APTA role is uh, as a um, facilitator, a stimulator, a um, catalyst, if you will, in trying to help our field be more proactive instead of reactive. And I, I think we can take the information that we use, that we learn from what's in the registry back to CMS again to help to help influence um, the, their programs and, and the change. Yeah, and, and I think there's an opportunity. The Affordable Care Act added a provision in it that made a I think a significant difference that's just starting to be understood. Um, prior to ACA, if uh, you wanted to analyze clinical data 
and merge it with Medicare claims data to make analysis and decisions, it always had to be done under the CMS umbrella. CMS would not release this Medicare claims data because of privacy issues to outside entities to analyze it. Um, but the ACA created a, a new qualified entity that is an, could be an intermediary between the people who hold the clinical data and CMS that that independent entity on behalf of uh, for research and analysis could take the data from the in the provider entities essentially and the CMS administrative claims data merge it do the analysis and share that information with both the provider community and CMS so that they could mutually work together and engage in uh, a discussion about what could be done with that. And so I think when the context of the APTA data, um, what's collected in there, could it be something to be done within that process to identify how that could be done with an independent entity to merge that data and provide that analysis? Because I think, you know, we tend to be reactive. The CMS is analyzing it, they're developing some things, they come out and say it, and it's a reactive process. If we have access to data at the same time they do, we can engage with them in the process and hopefully make it better so that whatever APTA is collecting or whatever any other groups collecting data could share that and maybe figure out what's the best solution to go for with. Uh, questions or comments from APTA? Just. Good morning. Thank you to the panelists. Uh, I just wanted to brief, uh, provide a brief comment on the last question on data registries. APTA's board of directors has made that uh, top priority uh, to really catalyze and make the <coughs> registry happen. So it's no longer a decision of should we do it or could we do it, but how do we do that? So we're presently a task force is uh, finishing up their work on a national registry uh, that will go to the board for decisions in as soon as August of this year that will really kind of uh, try to take the registry to the next level. And what I have now uh, made notes of is the Jetty 5 and making sure that it is uh, uniform, standardized, uh, consistent. And that has obviously been a difficult uh, process over the number of years. One of the things that is challenged is how do you represent the diversity and complexity of PT practice in a national registry? And what we're finding is now the necessity is you need to really bring that down to what are the simple components, the simple data elements that really can be uh, transmitted across settings. And then additional data can be added, but what are those core data elements? And then how do we attract the right providers to contribute that data? And so that is the process we're on. And uh, obviously it would be fabulous if we had that registry uh, available today. Uh, but the, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 70 years ago. Uh, the next best time is today. So we're taking that theory. And, uh, and the other thing that's uh, critically important about that is doing it in a way that the clinicians have ownership of it. And what has changed, and I think Alan hit this very uh, articulately, is uh, what has changed is APTA's operation of business of being command control and hoping you build it and then it'll disseminate and happen in the industry is no longer applicable. You have to really use the association as a way to leverage and convene what's going on in the field and be able to maximize those, those innovations and those leverage points. And what we have is resources and the ability to convene experts. And how do we use that to drive initiatives forward in a more productive approach? Uh, the last comment I have is, is 
building on what Dan said, is we have been in a re reactive posture uh, to the payment policy for a number of years, and the only way we're gonna drive new policy solutions is by having a data registry. And so that's why the importance of the board has, has had that is if we're really gonna become a policy driver versus a policy reactor, we have to have the database that people can go in and make decisions. And I said it was my last point, but the other thing is it's really gonna challenge us politically as an association because we're gonna have to make choices. Uh, being inclusive and trying to be uh, all the above policy is, is difficult. And there's many opinions and many commentaries on what are, patient, what are the best patient assessment tools. And as MedPAC looked at that, they looked at 435 different patient assessment tools in physical therapy. We need to get down to one. <laughs> and, uh, and most people know is policymakers are looking at one for all of therapy. Uh, if we could get to one for outpatient, one for you know, different settings, we're at least starting that process. But that standardization, that consistent use, is the only way we're gonna really be able to compare that apples to apples. So. Thank you. So if you have questions, please come to the mic. I uh, neglected to mention that this session is being videotaped, so be aware as you come to the mic. Uh, <laughs> I forgot the makeup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you look great. Very good. Yeah. Very good. All right, that made me nervous now. Um, no, I have a question about how to have measurements that meet, Justin, you just called it the Jetty 5, okay? The, the five components, but being reliable, having a minimal burden, and allowing therapists to use it for decision making. Because I think what happens is that therapists see this as another something they, ha they made me do to collect data, and it's not helping me. I need a me we're talking about we need a measure that can show the complexity of patients, that can be reliably administered, that can um, be a valid measure, but how can clinicians make decisions and I think we're not going to get a lot of buy-in unless we have a measure that can do that. And then my second issue, I think, is do we have measures and shouldn't we have measures that help to empower patients through their decision-making, not just our decision-making as a profession about what patients' treatment should be, but allowing patients to make decisions about what their treatment should be and where they want their goals to be. So I think... To your first question, I think the, the ability to aggregate and get the data back to the therapist is key. And so I, I think we, we found that that has really helped, I mean, in what we've done with Six Clicks, has really helped them guide their decision making um, on the inpatient side. So I have to imagine the same would be true on, on the outpatient side. And the other thing, it, you know, the patient reported outcome is not the only measure. So they're still doing provider reported outcome you know, um, tests and measures that also help them guide the care they provide. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's in tandem. There's, you know, they're using multiple tools to make decisions on patient care. Next question, please. Jim Carey um, from, the, from the University of Minnesota. And uh, first of all, I commend you all on a, on a great uh, discussion so far. It's gone very well. Uh, my. Uh, question is, I, I see the emphasis on functional data collection. Um, I do wonder if there is latitude, and, and I don't know the rule itself that's coming out, um, for things that influence uh, function. And, and the one in particular that I, I am curious about, and I'm not an expert at it at all, uh, is, is the genetic makeup that we have. Uh, 
and, and, and the uh, evidence that suggests that uh, some people are more akin to neuroplastic changes, I'm speaking of stroke now, uh, it, it, with a, a certain polymorphism that exists. And so uh, without getting into the science too deeply, is there any latitude that Medicare would uh, accept in, in uh, measuring other forms of data that influence function uh, in a heavy, heavy sort of way that are not truly functional data, it's more genetic data? Anyone? <laughs> uh, I, I guess I, I, and in the I guess in the context too. of, if you look in the context of what Medicare is trying to do with some of the other payment systems that are light years in advance of where outpatient therapy policy is, we're still in the Stone Ages, and you know they're in an, at least in the 1950s with uh, uh, some of the other inpatient systems where the quality data and things they're trying to collect are exactly those things you mentioned. They're trying to gather data that's useful to help better predict what type of resources and what type of uh, outcomes they expect from different people. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, the, have a better information that can describe that person as a whole person, and you'll have a better idea of what their outcome will be. You'll be able to do the risk adjustment to compare the apples of the apples better. And that's, that's the issue. The function reporting right now is just a baby step of saying that at least we know this person starting off can't even get out of their bed. Right now, there's nothing, until July 1st, officially, there's nothing that CMS knows that they can get out of their bed or not. We can know they're walking or not, depending on what the code is reported in there. And so that, that just talks about what the, uh, essentially, the result of all those things you're talking about. Um, the impact on the person as far as that specific function. Um, ideally, we want a system where we can collect data that can get a better picture of all the impacts of people so you have a better idea of the comorbidities and information that may also influence the amount of therapy and the, amount of, the speed of recovery or whatever, whatnot that might be the measure you have. So I think we, we are in the baby steps of without patient therapy and need to catch up with the other systems. Okay, next question, please. Uh, Cindy Fowler, University of Michigan Flint's physical therapy program. Is there room here for a hybrid approach that won't give us too many splinters? Um, where, as you look at your core set and you look at some of the therapist reported data, you look at some of the risk modifiers, um, and you look at the patient reported outcomes core sets, um, where we can look at a smaller item set that's generic and then take a more modular approach to try to tailor this to increase the sensitivity. Having worked a lot of years in cancer um, with over 200 different tumor types, we've had to do this for a long time in that patient population. And, you know, the Europeans have their modularized and core set that they've used for patient-reported quality of life for many years. We have our own system with FACT out of Chicago and Cello's work with the core set and modular um, patient-reported outcomes, but that's been largely done in patient-reported outcomes. It hasn't also been used with the risk modifiers and the patient-reported um, data um, or factors. So, Was the panelists able to hear the question? I don't know if there's a way to turn the volume up on that mic, but I believe the question is about the use of core sets and whether there's flexibility in using different types of core sets for different populations. Um, not so much the core set, no. but a modular approach on top of the core set, a hybrid approach. I see. Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of 
promise and potential for the idea of adding modules on top of a, a core. Uh, makes a lot of sense from my point of view. I, I agree, and we, we do that a lot at the um, at the clinic. I know, especially for the cancer population, they, you know, they want to use the fact B plus four, and so that's that. That will be another tool that they can use um, on top of of what we have. I agree, and I think they're trying to accomplish some of those uh, module activities within. You know, you look at again. Uh, the best way to do uh, policy sometimes is to imitate what already exists, and uh, some of the models they have for. Uh, the, the, the ACL reporting and group practice reporting uh, systems for CMS where they're collecting data, they do collect modular data for certain things. Next question, please. Good morning, Sharon Dunn, um, APTA Vice President and through that Chair of the Public Policy and Advocacy Committee for APTA. Thanks for your suggestions this morning and, and thank you for the deep discussion about um, whether this is a burden or an opportunity, we see both as well. Um, some of the comments about what APTA is doing on this to be to have some skin in the game um, deals with whether or not we're playing or we're on the sidelines. And very much we're playing. Uh, Alan and Mary, you suggested that APTA take a strong stand um, and and. We've had members concerned about the G-codes. We've had feedback that says, just say no to the G-code. And uh, <laughs> we certainly have to be playing to be able to be a player. Um, I, I, think, I think our staff has done a tremendous job at being at the table. Uh, they took eight of our 10 suggestions regarding the garbage in, garbage out philosophy and had, had they not taken eight of our 10 suggestions, it, the, the garbage would be a lot worse than it currently is. So I would like to know your definition of taking a strong stand, uh, because you, you draw a line in the sand and, and, you, and you have to, uh, you have to uh, assume the risks that come along with drawing a line in the sand. So, I would like to hear from Alan and Mary both what, what you think, what would you define as a strong stand with CMS? Yeah, it's a fair question. Uh, a strong stand from my point of view, and first of all, I am in no way suggesting we take a um, oppositional position to G-codes. They decided to do it, and I don't think that's going to be constructive or helpful. I tried to make that clear in my comments. But I think APTA could take a very proactive stance on what CMS should do with the data that they're going to be collecting through the G-codes and what they should not do with the data given the way they decided to collect that data. That's what I mean by taking a very strong stand. Before CMS does it, and then we're in the position of trying to decide whether or not we're going to try to fight what they have done. We know that they're going to collect the data. We know that someone, as Dan has already suggested, many different ways in which people could use those data for policy purposes. Taking a strong stand would be getting out in front of that issue and being very proactive in, in trying to lay out what we think CMS should and should not do going forward, given the decisions they've currently made. So that would be my 
Yeah, and I, I guess my, my stand, um, view is that, you know, at the clinic, again, with 700 rehab professionals, it was very hard to build consensus. I mean, you, you almost can't build consensus. And so the, it really became a, a, a really a top-down decision that this was the way we were going to implement it, and this was going to be the rule. And, and you know what? There was not very much backlash. Now, I'm not saying the AP, APTA has to say exactly what we're going to do, but I think, you know, there are so, there's so much variability about, about how our members are even applying this. You know, we've heard things all over the place. They've been told, just put the lowest modifier on and then the highest at their last visit, you know. And I think even just to come out, you know, and I, I know that we have, but really strong on, on that, that we, you know, or, 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 statement on what tools we really should use and implement and make that a standard. Yeah, and I would follow up a little bit. Uh, we, I think the association needs to really emphasize the CMS transparency in policymaking. You know, unfortunately, this policy was implemented by the mandate from Congress. In Congress, in one of their uh, um, lack of wisdom things, did not add a sentence on to the end of the reporting requirement. There is no requirement from Congress to analyze the data that CMS is collecting. So therefore, there is no funding for CMS to analyze the data collected. So it may be behoove the APTA to put some pressure on Congress to let them put pressure on CMS. What are you going to do with it and have Congress leverage CMS to say that you need to work with these folks ahead of time before you even think about analyzing this data? Uh, so that CMS is getting pressure from both provider side and the congressional side that mandated this requirement in law. Yes. Hello, I'm uh, Mike Friedman uh, from Johns Hopkins Hospital. Uh, Mary and uh, Alan, I first want to thank you for helping shape our strategy towards really looking at function as a vital sign and also starting to harmonize amongst large health systems when doing it the same way. Uh, you had brought up a point earlier about OASIS, the MDS, and and FIM, and now this is a fourth methodology to collect add function. And in our setting, we're looking at starting with the patient with a functional footprint or function as a vital sign in the ICU to an ERF, to a home care, to the outpatient setting, and unfortunately sometimes back to the ICU. And uh, I was lucky enough to have a conversation uh, with Alan about really our utopian world would be no subjective history. If it's truly a vital sign, you would know what that person's function was, no different than a blood pressure. What, in your minds, is the role of other professions? Because beyond MDS and beyond OASIS, we're dealing with uh, falls information, safe patient handling, nurses have certain functional scores, primary care physicians, what's their role as well. So if we're really looking to get this vital sign, how do we create that singular measure not just within physical therapy, but across other professions. So I can speak to what we've done at the Cleveland Clinic, and it's just start. And so, right, so we just started doing this six clicks and, and, getting, the and getting the data on that. And, and the next step is probably to make that part of a nursing screening tool. And so it, so it won't necessarily be done by us, um, but it will, it will be done by um, nursing staff as part of the initial assessment, but we had to start somewhere. And so, uh, that, you know, that's the most insight I have is that we started there and then now we're able to transition that um, onto other healthcare professionals. You, you know, you bring up a really critical point. It, um, it's a really, we're in a very difficult transitional phase. Uh, we're trying to introduce innovation in a changing healthcare environment where we're having to deal with the traditional 
mechanisms all at the same time. So it's a terrible situation to be in. So we're still in, in a FIM, MDS, Oasis world that hasn't gone away yet. Uh, and, and that was the world of the 20th century um, where we worked in silos. I think those walls are breaking down and that world's going to go away. And my, my hope is those tools will go away as well. Uh, they served a very useful purpose for the 20th century and centuries over. So I, I think we're in the difficult position of having to create innovation while the change is occurring. And, and you're right. I mean, it's extremely challenging, and we can't do it in isolation. Uh, I do think we have to engage our colleagues and other professions who are working with us in those settings to try to bring them on board and to help reach consensus how you're going to look at this vital sign. It's no different than any other vital sign where you have to reach consensus. And that's not been easy either. When you look at the history of, of even something as simple as measuring blood pressure, there's still tremendous error and variability in how blood pressure is measured across different settings where people don't trust the data. So blood pressure is a heck of a lot easier to measure than function. So, so I would agree with you. There's no magic bullet for this. But I, I do think uh, to the extent that we show the value to the healthcare systems in which you're working for this kind of information, you're going to get the kind of corporate support and institutional support that you need to really keep pushing the envelope. So um, that, that would be my perspective. And, and I can speak to that because until we had this data, I couldn't get anything done. At the, you know, the clinic's such a big institution. And now that we have this data, I'm, I'm, I get a phone call a day from somebody that, you know, in, um, in, in administration that, that wants to see what we're doing with data and how it's going to impact, you know, think lots of things, length of stay, readmissions. Um, so, that, so the data is very, very important to them. So I guess, again, it's just beginning to collect it. Thank you very much. I'm Barbara Feth from HealthSouth, and um, my role in rolling this out is very similar to Mary's. As you can imagine, we have over 100 inpatient rehab hospitals, um, at least as many outpatient clinics and, and some home health. So what, we took a very different approach, um, maybe an easier approach, which was we said, we'll look at the legislation just as it is. We'll do, try to do a minimal impact on the therapist, but at the same time, be able to, to move our practices forward in a positive way. So the first thing was um, you're already required to do objective mm -hmm. test measures on admission and then report at the interval progress note. This is identical to what's being asked in claims-based data collection. And then our second point was to define for our clinicians, and we just kind of pulled it out of our expert therapist, what are those functional categories? What would they mean to your patients individually? When would you choose this category versus this category? So we created our definitions for that. And then the third thing that we did was say, um, zero, what is 0% zero impaired for this patient within this category, and that's how we enabled clinicians to, you know, make that, have an image of what 0% impaired for mobility would be. And in most cases, it works quite well. We have a lot of resources on the IT side where we can look at our data, analyze it, and we have 
kind of a step back approach to that, but would like to be involved in people who are taking a very different approach as you are. But to your point, what we, the system works perfectly until you have that patient who wants to return to marathon running. So now all of a sudden you have a patient who for 0% impaired is running a marathon and another patient 0% impaired is throwing away my walker and being able to walk fast enough to cross the street. So I guess my question is, um, do you see a utility for having systems that have taken a different approach, working together with other systems and together trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to move the field forward? So, I mean, I, I think it just, that what you just said just speaks to the point that we're all measuring things in such a different way, you know? And so the data that Medicare gets, how me I don't know how meaningful it's going to be. You know, again, our, our level of impairment is strictly based on the impact score. So it's, you know, it, it will look very different than yours. Um, although yours is going to be meaningful to you and ours will be meaningful to us, I'm not sure how meaningful that will be to, to Medicare in terms of making decisions, you know? So... Your example is a beautiful illustration of the problem that CMS created by the way that yep. they did this. Yep. Yep. I would not fault you for what you nope. did. It makes perfect sense in your environment. But from a systems point of view and where we need to go, just multiply what you've done by all the providers in this country, and we've got this morass of information where everyone's doing it differently, yep. and it won't mean anything when we try to bring it together. It may mean something within our unique institutional and practice settings, and so I'm not negating that in any way. But this is a national program, and you can't create a meaningful national program of this nature when everyone's doing it their own way. It's just, and so I'm not advocating, well, I am advocating kind of the approach <laughs> I think people should use, but I think the key is that we have to have a standard common approach uh, otherwise, we're going to all be working within our isolated uh, situations. Yeah, and I would add that uh, it's been many years, uh, a lot of people have been trying to approach the idea that as a profession, we need to get a little bit more standardization how we do things. And unfortunately, it's taken a, uh, a legislative mandate to require us to begin these discussions. I, I think there's been incredible discussions and very meaningful. And I think you know, I think it's a valid, useful first step within a, a large uh, facility, a large group, to start standardizing within itself. You know, ideally, it'd be nice if everybody had the same standard to live to, but at least that discussion's begun in earnest in that, uh, you know, the people are getting their hand, heads out of the sand, some people, and, and everybody else are really trying to honestly work towards it. I think that's going to allow us to have more honest and um, useful discussions and recommendations of CMS as far as what we need to do because we have, in our groups, have tried to pull this stuff together and say, how would we do this? You know, maybe we need to all do is be handed uh, Alan's list and say that this this is what the strategy we need to work on. As long as we're working on our own, let's work on a common strategy, a guiding principle, and work from there um, until we get a better idea and pull, we can pull together our own approach nationally to how we want to have as a profession approach this issue of how we report function or outcome or whatever score will ultimately be used to determine our payment. 
I think we're going to need to end our time here. Our time is up, uh, so I'm sorry. I think that the panelists will be able to be here for a few more moments after to take your conversation and your question. So please join me in saying thank you to the panelists for kicking off what I'm sure is going to be an ongoing... I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing conversation within the profession, and I really thank you for your participation, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you.